I'm Emily Hawthorne, a Middle East and North Africa analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, our premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analyses. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. I was afraid more than once meeting the KGB in the bowels of Moscow. Those are terrifying moments because those are terrifying people. Welcome to the Stratford podcast focused on geopolitics and world affairs from Stratford.com. I'm your host, Ben Sheen. Thanks for listening. What happened to CIA branch chief Freddie Woodruff? Yes, he was shot. Yes, a soldier in the then-Soviet Republic of Georgia was convicted for his murder. But what really happened? In this episode of the Stratfor podcast, Chief Security Officer Fred Burton speaks with Michael Pallara, author of The Spy Who Was Left Behind. String by string, Pallara unravels a mystery involving a murder, a conviction, and ultimately, an international conspiracy to cover up. Hi, my name is Fred Burton, and I'm here today with Michael Pulara. And Michael has written a great book called The Spy Who Was Left Behind. The story is about the 1993 murder of a CIA officer by the name of Freddie Woodruff. Michael, thank you for joining the Stratfor podcast today. It is a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this. Tell me how you went about putting this story together and why. The story is a recounting of my representation of the Woodruff family survivors in their effort to get the young man convicted of killing Freddie out of prison because he was innocent. I had discovered the fact of Freddie's death while reading the New York Times one morning at breakfast. I recognized his name because Freddie was someone with whom I had grown up in Searcy, Arkansas. He had come to Searcy to go to Harding College, where I was in the affiliate elementary school at the time he arrived, and I ended up going to school with his sisters and sitting in Bible class with his father. So when I read that Freddie had been murdered in Tbilisi, Georgia, while riding in the backseat of a car driven by the head of personal protection for Edward Shevardnadze, I became interested. And I thought it might be nice to give the family a little bit of information in the form of facts and details about Freddie's demise to help them process and deal with his death. And when I began that investigation, it very quickly became apparent to me that the young man who had been convicted of that crime did not commit it. It was impossible for him to have committed the crime. And when I presented this to the family, specifically to Freddie's oldest sister, Georgia, her response was, well, that's terrible. What are we going to do to set that young man free? And that began a multi-decade odyssey to get him out of jail. Michael, that's an amazing story. And in the spirit of transparency for our listeners, uh, I just want everyone to know that when I was a special agent with the State Department, our office looked into the murder of Freddie Woodruff uh, in the Soviet Republic of Georgia. Although I did not deploy on the actual case, one of the agents that I worked alongside with did. So when I saw your book, uh, obviously I had to read it. 
We also curiously protected uh, Shevardnadze when he would travel to the United States, uh, which uh, is an interesting kind of nexus there, too, to connect that dot. But, uh, Michael, in putting this story together, how did you do your research? It started with freedom of information requests that I made to various government agencies that were involved, the CIA, the FBI, the Department of State, the National Security Agency. The CIA gave me nothing. I sued them. I lost. I went to the Fifth Circuit. I lost. And this was the beginning of what proved to be persistent and consistent opposition to my goals. The FBI, however, was more forthcoming in their materials. It was badly boulderized and and expurgated and censored, but I was able to make some sense out of the roughly 12 inches of documents that they sent me over the next decade. In addition, the Department of State provided me a whole series of documents, most important of which was a day-by-day summary of the trial of the young man who had been prosecuted. And so I was able, in large measure, to feel like I was actually sitting in the courtroom because the court did not have a contemporaneous record other than this one. When I completed the review of the materials, it was about 10 years after the murder when things had finally come through from my government, I got on an airplane and went to Georgia to sort of round out my investigation. The people in power at that time were still the same people who had put the young man in jail, so I didn't feel like I had anything that I could specifically do to obtain his freedom. But I did get to talk to some of the people involved in the investigation who were out of government. And one of them, uh, the former head of the Information and Security Service, which was at that time their essentially their FBI and CIA, he provided me an affidavit that in the presence of his deputies, the police had planted evidence for the FBI to find. Wow. You know, I got to tell you, as a former agent who has lived in this world and conducted international investigations of assassinations and bombings and hijackings, I was going in with eyes wide open with full support at times of our own government. Were you ever scared in in looking at this kind of case? Because you you were kind of picking a uh, band off a bad wound here. Well, I I, I was – frightened either before or after particular events. But as you know, Fred, when you're in the midst of the fray, if your attention is not fully focused on what's happening at that moment, then you are at risk. And so while I was standing toe-to-toe with Mr. Shakashvili and his guards who had their guns trained on me, I was thinking only about Mr. Shakashvili. Afterwards, my stomach curdled and I was terrified. When I was confronting Eldar Gogoladze, trying to get him to confess that his testimony was false, I was focused entirely on him. But afterwards, when the FBI came to me and said, he's trying to kill you, you need to leave the country, I was afraid. And more than once, uh, meeting the KGB in the bowels of Moscow, those are terrifying moments because those are terrifying people. Well, without a doubt. I mean, in reality, uh, you perhaps would never have made it out of that dungeon if they had chose to go down that path. That's uh, Moscow rules. When you look back at this case, 
Michael. What do you think happened to Freddie? I think that Freddie was placed in harm's way by people who were fixated on finding the mole inside the CIA. I, I think that in the mid-80s, we suffered horrific losses in human intelligence sources and were desperate to find the source of those losses. The CIA and FBI together had already focused on and identified Aldrich Ames as the person who was responsible for at least a portion of those losses. And I believe that they made a troubling but defensible decision to allow Ames to continue operating and to continue traveling outside the United States, including to Georgia to meet with Freddie and others in Tbilisi. He was there three weeks before Freddie was murdered. Aldrich James and Freddie had a social relationship and liked to drink together. And I believe that on one of those occasions, a specific day that I can identify, he and Freddie got drunk together. And after that, everything changed for Freddie Woodruff. And I believe that Ames disclosed himself, revealed something that caused Freddie, a highly trained intelligence officer, to realize that Ames was probably the spy that they were all looking for. Ames panics, contacts the KGB. The KGB sets in motion a plan to assassinate Freddie before he can return to Langley and report his findings. But the sad and frustrating part about it all was the agency already knew Ames was a traitor. They had already instituted proceedings against him through the Department of Justice. He just didn't know it yet. They were letting him run. They were playing the fish because they had other losses that could not be explained by Aldrich James alone. That led to one of the great ironies of this whole case, Fred. When the FBI finally started trying to trace the connection between Ames' treachery and Freddie Woodruff's assassination, they would go to the State Department and deal with the FBI liaison officer at the State Department to get country clearance in order to go to Georgia, in order to go to Russia, in order to go to Azerbaijan. And they would brief that officer on the status of their investigation of Aldrich Ames. Now, by this time, they knew that Aldrich Ames had been run by Viktor Cherkashin. Cherkashin was a, an agent of extraordinary reputation inside the KGB. They briefed the liaison officer regarding the status of their investigation of Ames, and that liaison officer was Robert Hansen, another Cherkashian-run spy. Wow. And, of course, Hansen was uh, the infamous uh, traitor in the midst at uh, the FBI who had access to all kinds of uh, internal documents and records and so forth, which uh, identified uh, assets that were working for the U.S., pre predominantly Russian assets. So just the uh, connecting the dots like you have done so well, Michael, in this story is is simply amazing. And uh, I, I think the, uh, the tragedy here, uh, we, we all know that this is a dirty business. And 
the, the great game of espionage, uh, in many ways, uh, people aren't supposed to be killed, uh, but uh, it does happen. So uh, in essence, you see Freddie was pretty much executed by the KGB in order to protect a better-placed asset, which was Aldra James. I had a meeting in Moscow with a KGB officer. I had several, but the one in particular. And he raised a very interesting possibility that Ames, who had been moved from Soviet counterintelligence into drug-related intelligence, had reached the end of his usefulness to the KGB. Interesting. And, and that the KGB executed Freddie not to save Ames, but to draw attention to Ames. Interesting. Thereby protecting another better-placed agent. Which was Hansen uh, inside the FBI. Potentially. But the KGB didn't know who Hansen was. He was very careful to guard his identity from them. And so they did not know to what extent he might or might not be at risk. The suggestion from the KGB officer that I met with on that occasion was there was somebody who, absent a body that they could surrender to the CIA, might himself be found. And there are, of course, whispers of specific people that the agency and the Bureau were looking at that they stopped looking at because of Ames' arrest. We'll get back to our conversation with Michael Pallara, author of The Spy Who Was Left Behind, in just one moment. Be sure to check out the links in our show notes. This book addresses a geopolitical game between the United States and the Soviet Union, and Stratfor Enterprise can help you keep up to date on rapid changes in the global environment. Our analyst team tracks developments and forecasts the long-term implications for organizations and individuals alike. With Stratfor Enterprise, Businesses and teams can find out what's truly important right now and develop a more accurate view of the future. And this is backed up with detailed maps, charts, and graphs that help lay out political, economic, and security risk. And also, as part of the Enterprise Package, you get access to our world-class analyst team. You can learn more about individual, team, and enterprise subscriptions at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. Now, back to our conversation about the spy who was left behind. And looking back at this case, I know from just doing my own books, uh, Michael, there's always loose ends. There's always things that you know still keep me up at night and kind of drive me crazy because I didn't figure it out. Uh, what didn't you figure out in this story? I can tell you that you're absolutely right that there's a, there's a whole plethora of things that I didn't figure out. The one that I muse on the most is Eldar Gogoladze's employment history. Who was he, Michael? Eldar was the driver of the car that Freddie was riding in at the time of his assassination. Eldar was the head of personal protection for Edward Shevardnadze. When Shevardnadze had been invited back to Georgia to take a position, the junior position, inside the ruling governing council, he contacted Jim Baker and asked the United States to provide his personal protection, the bodyguards. This became a CIA operation in which the CIA used Delta Force assets in order to train a bodyguard service around Shevardnadze and to stand up a small anti-terrorist squad that he alone could control. 
However, the head of that personal protection force was appointed not by Shevardnadze, but by another member of the governing council, a mafia chieftain named Jabba Yoseliani. Jabba chose Eldar Gogoladze. Now, according to my research and the statements of a whole bunch of different people, Gogoladze started out as a GRU asset inside the Soviet Union, and GRU placed him inside of KGB to spy on KGB. He then went to Georgian KGB when that country broke apart and moved up through the police department into the interior ministry, where Jabba Yoseliani tapped him to be the head of Shevardnadze's personal protection force. Now, as you well know, if I can control your personal protection, I can decide when you are going to be murdered. And so the Jabba Yoseliani was trying to control protection of our friend Shevardnadze. Freddie tried to recruit Eldar for the CIA. And inside the Georgian intelligence services, they referred to Eldar as the CIA agent. Interesting. But the truth was, I believe his loyalty lay with Gru. And after the second assassination attempt of Edward Shevardnadze, Shevardnadze had Eldar put in prison for complicity in that attempt. Eldar was later let out of prison on a general amnesty and immediately became the chief executive officer of the largest conglomerate inside of Georgia, a company called Kartu. Kartu was ostensibly owned by a guy named Bidzina Ivanashvili, and Bidzina later became the prime minister who was elected and clipped the wings of Misha Shakashvili. Everything that I was able to uncover suggested that Bidzina Ivanashvili didn't own the company, that it was, in fact, a GRU slush fund derived from their operations in smuggling drugs out of Afghanistan. That's an amazing uh, story. And as you and I both know in trying to piece the the puzzle together in, in this kind of event, uh, it can get very uh, gray and sometimes there, there's not absolutes in this. But at the end of the day uh, – in 1993, a good man was killed. And what you've done so well, Michael, in putting the spy who was left behind together is connect the dots to you know the great game of espionage and, and all the bad that comes out of this kind of business at times and the death of um, a CIA officer. So I thank you for doing this story. I think it's a very powerful one. I, I know that our listeners here at Stratfor will find this fascinating, and we uh, appreciate the work you did for this story and uh, shining a little transparency into uh, the life of a man, and, and it certainly was a story that needs to be told. You know, and Fred, I appreciate the work that you and your fellow professionals did for many, many years for the United States, because one of the things I learned from this was the extraordinary professionalism and dedication of the men and women at the pointy end of our spear. Well, you're very kind to say that. Thank you again, Michael. You bet.
Thanks for joining us for this conversation with Stratfor's Chief Security Officer, Fred Burton, and Michael Pallara, author of The Spy Who Was Left Behind, Russia, the United States, and the true story of the betrayal and assassination of a CIA agent. If you'd like to learn more about the book, you can visit Michael Pallara's author page on simonandschuster.com, and we'll include links to online retailers in the show notes, along with a link to Fred Burton's latest bestseller, Beirut Rules, The Murder of a CIA Station Chief and Hezbollah's War Against America. And if you're interested in learning how Stratfor can help you stay on top of world events, be sure to visit Stratfor Worldview and learn more about individual, team, and enterprise-level access at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. And you can even register for free limited access to explore more of our work. If you have a question about the podcast or even an idea for the next one, you can email us at podcast at stratfor.com. And if you have a moment, please leave a review on the podcast page on iTunes or wherever you listen. We really appreciate your feedback. And for more geopolitical intelligence, analysis, and forecasting that reveal the underlying significance and future implications of world events, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Stratford.